0: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For
1: more information, visit cambriainvestments.com.
0: Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a totally unique, very special show for you, unlike many of the episodes we've done here today. And most of y'all who've been listening to this for a while know that investing is one of my two biggest professional loves. And If you go back long enough, you all know that I was actually a bioengineering major And early career, started out as a biotech stock analyst. So today we're honored to have a world-renowned evolutionary biologist, best-selling writer joining us. She's written for The Economist, New York Times, Smithsonian, and of course, written the international best-selling book, which is one of my favorites of all time. Long-time listeners have heard me mention it many times. Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation. I'm thrilled to have her with us today. Welcome, Olivia Judson.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So, Olivia is joining us today from Berlin. And, listeners, you, you may be able to hear the end of some pretty awesome church bells going on in the background. What, what's Is this the hourly clock, or what, what's going on in Berlin right now?
1: No, there's, you kind of get special enthusiasm around 6 p.m., which is what it is now. But it's also, there's been more church bells than usual because it's gearing up for the Christian holiday that in English would be called called Ascension Day, which is when I think Jesus Christ is supposed to go to heaven. But in German, it's called Christi Himmelfahrt, which means Christ travels to the sky. So that's on Thursday.
0: My lineage goes back to Germany. But I, as, a, as a young child, I remember we'd drive across the country and we'd always, always pass Frankfurt My, I thought it was the funniest thing of all time as a, as, a, as a five-year-old, very JV humor. But let's go back in time a little bit. So I came across your work probably over a decade ago when, when you'd publish your book. And we'll come back to that in a second. But... Technically, you fit in the podcast, because I think you may have gotten your start, and you can correct me as I'm wrong, give me a little timeline correction, but you may have started out doing some writing for The Economist, which is a pretty famous business magazine. And, and I've read The Economist for years, and I was reading, if not your first post, maybe one of your first articles. And I don't think an, I've ever seen an article in a business magazine start with this prose. It says, I'm worried. All of my lovers leave their genitals inside me and then drop dead. Is this normal? So <laughs> <laughs> I thought it'd be a good intro. on how, how does how do scientists get started writing for a business magazine?
1: Well, The Economist has a science section at the back. So it's it's after the business section, then there's science and technology and and then obituaries and books and arts and that kind of thing. And I think that originally, maybe I don't know, maybe the idea was to write about technology in a way that would help understand business and economics, but it became its own thing, a bit like the Science Times and the New York Times. And so it became basically a sort of update on scientific research and developments. And I started freelancing for them, actually, when I was in graduate school, partly because the first year of my PhD was going so badly that I thought, my goodness, I'm going to have to find something else, because obviously being a scientist isn't going to work out. And I didn't realize that this is the usual panic that all first year PhD students have. But I started freelancing for them. The way that it happened is every spring they advertise an internship for somebody with a science background who wants to spend some time at the magazine writing about science and learning journalism. And I applied for that. And I didn't get it. But what I got, I was interviewed. And what I got instead was a letter that said, well, we're sorry, we're not giving you the position. But if you ever have something you want to write for us, let us know. And I picked up the phone and called the guy and, and suggested a story. And he said, OK, go ahead and do it. So I, I did it. And he published something generally on the same subject. Most of my original text had been completely removed. But I got a, I got a check and I got a letter that said, um, that was great. Send us more. And that's when I started my involvement with them. And then as it happened, the timing worked out so that when I finished my PhD, eventually they, um, they offered me a, a staff job, which I did for a few years.
0: You know, it, it's funny. I, I'm 90% sure I, I also applied for that job at one point. So I, I did undergrad in biotech. And kind of similar to you, I, I, my brother had done his PhD. And he's like, "Mab, take some time off, make some money. It's a long slog. It took him like over a decade. And so I took a year off to go work as kind of in the middle as a, as a biotech stock analyst. And eventually that one year became two and two became three and kind of pushed me into a totally different career. So it's kind of interesting, the parallel. So, all right, so you start you started writing The Economist. I think I saw somewhere you had a really funny reference to your first check you received from them. And I think it's from The Economist. Do you recall this, the check I'm referring to?
1: Well, it wasn't it was it wasn't the first, but I think it was the third or fourth. I did a, I did a piece for The Economist about the um, the possible... Evolutionary function of masturbation in humans, for which I got a check that said Olivia Judson, masturbation, one hundred and fifty pounds.
0: First of all, that's pretty. That's a pretty good rate for an article. You, that's a uh, that's not so bad. I, I don't think we've gotten paid for any of our magazine articles, Jeff. Anyway, okay. So you started writing with the Economist. What what was the genesis of some of the ideas to to write your own book? Was it something that you had just been thinking about for a while, or you know, you kind of sprung from? From your brain one day in a holiday, how did you originally start to decide to put pen to paper?
1: Well, I think, so, so the article that you referred to is was actually the basis of the book. At least the, it was the inspiration for the particular style, the idea to create a character who received letters from animals that are upset about their sex lives and say, No, no, I know that sounds really weird, but in your case, it's perfectly normal. And here's why or here's what people think or here's what the latest research suggests but that came in a context of my having studied the general subject of the evolutionary biology of sex for for some time i mean it was a, it was the subject that my phd had been on and so it tapped into a whole area that i'd been thinking about for a long time before i started journalism or thinking about writing a book and of course This led to a a kind of uh, delusional arrogance. I kind of thought, well, I mean, I'm a journalist, I write at this speed, a book is this long, so I'll be done in six months. So I happily decided to quit my job and write this book, and uh, well, four years later, I finally finished it. Of course, that was nothing to my current project, where 10 years later, and I still haven't finished it. But uh, that's a different story.
0: I want to touch on this book for a little bit, and then we'll get into some other topics. We actually got some pretty funny and interesting Twitter questions when I asked yesterday, because this has been one of the most influential books I've ever read. And so listeners on the podcast have actually heard me reference it a number of times and say it's one of my favorite books on so many sort of behavior and psychology and evolutionary biology. And granted, I'm, I'm a genetics nerd, but at the same time, I think it, it has threads that apply to so many other areas of life. So back in the day, this is my early 20s, I remember reading the book and I was trying to convince a handful of friends to read it. And I knew they wouldn't. So I knew if I went to them and said, hey, I got a great evolutionary biology book you should read. That's, that's zero people are going to read that. Of, of my young 20 buddies, when I said, at the very least, this may help you convince some of your partners into some sexually deviant behavior. And I was just saying this is a joke. And then fast forward, saw it on two of my buddies' nightstands. They were probably, that was the only thing they heard in the top of their head, but at least they read it. So all that with a weird intro. Let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the ideas and, and maybe some of the, how the ideas have evolved over time. Um, so many of the concepts in the book, I, I heard you mention that Almost all the people ask you about it ask about two topics, which is monogamy and infidelity, and also homosexuality. But so much of it to me is about this battle between the male and the female. And so I think you had a quote, and I'll paraphrase, it said, at every level, males and females, genes they carry have very different interests in pursuit of their interests as an engine of evolutionary change. So could you describe this dynamic a little bit in a little more detail to, to give our, our listeners a little, little overview?
1: Well, it's quite interesting because the, when you think about it, it's, it's easy to see, for example, how evolutionary dynamics can develop between a parasite and a host because they're separate entities, they're separate species. It's easy to sort of see well, okay, the genes of the parasite may evolve in this direction and the genes of the host are going to evolve to resist being damaged and you can you can make easy predictions. But the thing that's different about males and females is that most of the genes spend time in both sexes, right? I mean, if I if my egg is fertilized by a sperm, then genes from me will will go into could go into a male as well as a female. I might have a son, I might have a daughter and and Whichever it is, they will have half of my genes and half of, half of my partner's genes. And so this means that this creates a very different kind of tension and dynamic. And yet at the same time, you often have situations where what is in the interest of the male is not in the interests of the female and, and vice versa. And those can be highly variable. I mean, there's, there's definitely no prescription for what's going to be beneficial or not. Sometimes it's the female would prefer to have many partners, sometimes the male would, sometimes they both would, but sometimes one prefers and the other doesn't. And this this can create very complex dynamics and behaviors. And indeed, one of the reasons that I wanted to write about sex in the first place is that when you look at the natural world, a great deal of the variation that we see between different kinds of birds, or different kinds of mammals, or insects, or whatever, or fish, is being driven by the dynamics of sexual reproduction. And sometimes, sometimes it's because males prefer females with certain characteristics. Sometimes it's the other way around. And sometimes it's members of one sex are trying to manipulate members of the other. It's uh, it's very complex, and I, I find it I find it marvellous.
0: So you know, one of the most interesting concepts you were talking about, kind of Bateman's principle, which which is generally that. Females of, of kind of pillars of virtue and, you know, males are CADs and in your research seems to point to maybe a different takeaway. And you had a quote where you said, folks, it's time to bury forever the notion that the female promiscuity is an unfortunate accident a malfunction, the result of coercion, or simply as a last resort to get the pesky guy to go away. Natural selection, it seems, often smiles on strumpets. Maybe tell us a little more about kind of what you found here. Why Why is that necessarily the case or, or a general rule or not?
1: Well, the first thing I'd like to clarify is the meaning of the word promiscuous. So a lot of people would imagine that promiscuous means not choosy. And that's not necessarily the case. So choosiness, how selective you are, and how many mates you have, are not necessarily the same axis. So, for example, if I'm propositioned by 10 males and I have sex with one, I have not been promiscuous and I have not been choosy. But if I'm propositioned by 1,000 males and I have sex with 100, I have been promiscuous, but I have been just as choosy as I was before, because the ratio is the same. So, the point is not so much that females are not selective, it's that sometimes in some species, actually in quite a lot of species it turns out, Females benefit from having multiple partners. Now, the reasons that they may benefit from that can vary a great deal from one situation to another. So there's no general rule about when it happens and there's no general rule about why it happens, but it is much more prevalent than was thought 40 years ago.
0: So you guys also had a lot of, there's a lot of case studies in the book and and listeners, you definitely just got to go buy the book because it's a fun read you can knock out in in an afternoon or evening. And so thinking about it, I mean, there's so many just crazy examples where you have, you know, super violent rituals where the praying mantis, you know, will, will bite off the lover's head and you have honeybees where the penis will, you know, the body will explode and the penis will stay in the queen. And, and wrapped in this concept is the thought of what's considered natural versus the human kind of conception of of what's morally acceptable, because there's so much that goes on in, in the animal world that's considered natural you know, but in their genetics that that as humans we, we would we would kind of really deviate from. So are there any examples you can think of or any threads you wanna pull on 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 that kind of concept of what we would consider to be crazy behaviors, but in the greater scheme of things, humans Seem you know the the behavior seems so mundane compared to all the case studies in the book. Well,
1: I have to say that that ultimately it made me pretty glad to be human. I I think that you know that that reading about some of what goes on elsewhere. Part of what I loved was discovering the the diversity of nature. I mean, one of my all time favorite organisms is the green spoon worm, which has one of the largest known sex differences. Sorry, size differences between male and female, where the male is two hundred thousand times smaller than the female, but In general, I I ended up feeling pretty happy that that humans are just doing a sort of small subset of all the possible sexual behaviors.
0: So much of it involves death or risk of death or a lot of it you listened to and I was laughing because it just it seems like so much work. But then I, I watch my friends on some of the dating apps that spend three, four days a week going out on, on Tinder dates and Bumble. And that seems like a lot of work <laughs> and expenses to me, too. So I don't know. Well, one or two more questions kind of on the book, and we're going to start to to jump around a bit. There's a number of kind of evolutionary examples that I think people get confused about. I think one being homosexuality and, and one of the, the biggest challenges of that being the consistent argument for people that how could you have a behavior where if it lacks the ability to procreate how how could those genes get passed along maybe touch on that for a little bit cuz i think that's a really interesting topic that would be fascinating to the to the listeners
1: so i think that homosexuality in other organisms is one of and indeed in humans is quite poorly understood and let's assume that homosexuality has a genetic component which it has not been shown for any organism clearly but let's assume that homosexual behavior has a genetic component. And let's assume that it is exclusive, such that homosexual individuals never mate with opposite sex individuals. And let's say it's fairly common. If those three conditions are met, if homosexuality is common, genetic, and exclusive, then it becomes an interesting genetic question because it's only in those in that case that you have something to explain. If it's not genetic, then there's nothing to explain. If it's not exclusive, then homosexual individuals are reproducing sometimes, and so there's nothing to explain. And if it is rare, then then it might just be something essentially random. And again, there's nothing important to explain. But So then the interesting case is, could it be genetic exclusive and common? Now, we don't know the answer to that for in fact, any organism. There are certainly a very wide variety of animals that have been described having homosexual behavior from, from dolphins to seagulls to, you know, camels or whatever, you name it. But what we don't know is whether that's a lifelong preference for those individuals to the exclusion of reproduction. We simply have no idea. And even in humans, we don't really know because assessing the historical behavior of people is difficult to do. And it it may well have been the case. I mean, there are indications that in ancient Rome and ancient Greece, many people were bisexual. But it's very difficult to assess these questions in the historical past. But let's assume that those three conditions are met and it is genetic, exclusive and common. Then it turns out that actually there are a number of different mechanisms that could lead to the genes being maintained in the population anyway. For example, if in fact it's a, it's a gene that, that is highly beneficial in the other sex for in terms of fertility, then you might find that it is maintained simply because it's beneficial in a different genetic circumstance. So it turns out that there's no reason to think that homosexuality is intrinsically unbiological. It may be, it may not be, I think it's difficult to, to draw any firm conclusions, but it's, it's definitely, you know, you're not going to sort of think, okay, well, that's, that's out of the question. In fact, it's, it's in the question.
0: So, you know, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, I reread your book again, uh, this past week and it's funny to revisit it. And cause I smile at, at a couple of the stories like about the Argentinian lake duck and all these other fun stories that I, I just forgotten about. But one of the ones that was really humorous to me that, that is an interesting concept that I don't think is maybe played out that much in the modern world yet, and it might. Is you'd written about the concept of the old T-shirt study, and I don't know if that's been expanded over the years. Maybe could you could explain that study a little bit, and I'll have a, a funny extension of that after you give the audience kind of the, the broad overview of what that might have been.
1: So the question was: Are humans responsive to? genetic differences? And in particular, are they responsive to genes at the major histocompatibility complex, which is a set of genes that's important in how the immune system behaves? And the prediction was that females would prefer the smell of males that were different from themselves because that would allow their offspring to have higher genetic diversity at the genes important in the immune system. And so the experiment there was a, a smelly T-shirt experiment done where men were invited to not wash for several days and wear the same, same T-shirt over and over again. And then the T-shirts were handed out to women who were also then genetically analyzed. And the question was, which T-shirts did they prefer? And it turned out that in general, it was true, females did prefer the smell of males who were different from themselves at the MHC. The only big exception to that at that time was women who were taking the pill whose preferences were reversed. I have to say that I haven't looked to see what has been done subsequently with that. It was uh, some time ago, and I don't know how much it's been followed up.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, that was kind of fascinating, because I thought about it for a second. I said, this makes so much sense. It's sort of nature's way of aligning partners to give them, you know, the best chance at at possible evolutionary fitness. And, you know, once you take the pill, it's kind of convincing your body that it's pregnant. And I said, I wonder if a whole generation of people that have (laughs) selected the wrong partners based on that. I would love to see some more research. Anyway, my my extension was that I live in Los Angeles and was actually dating a girl in Berlin at the time in Prince, Prince Lauerberg, I think is where she lived. And they had a event in L.A. that was a, a essentially a dating event that was a T-shirt smelling sort of compatibility event. And so you, for like three days prior, you had to wear a T-shirt and you weren't supposed to shower, use deodorant or whatever, and put it into a bag. You got a number. And you went to this event and of course they had beer and wine and everything else. But... You went around smelling bags of t-shirts. It was actually kind of funny because you would smell some and it'd be like, that doesn't smell like anything. You'd smell some and be like, wow, that smells amazing. And you would smell some and and like literally want to vomit. And so the way they had set it up was actually kind of a bad way to set it up because then you, if you found a shirt you liked, you'd go take a photo with the bag. And then that person is supposed to be watching the TV and you get matched later but uh, I never, I never followed up on it. I would-
1: well, I think that that's, but I think that this is the thing. Actually, is that what people prefer in a kind of test like that doesn't necessarily mean that that's who they team up with, because obviously preferences are modulated not only by smell. I mean, there are plenty of other things that that you like or dislike about about somebody, and so I think I think ultimately, it, it, there's no evidence that, that this is actually how people end up together.
0: Yeah. And and then, of course, you say you smell great, but you chew with your mouth open and also smoke cigarettes. So you're out. What, whatever the preferences may be that people have. Um, it's so much more complicated and interesting. But but it's funny to me because I think, you know, almost in like a the old movie Gattaca, was it Ethan Hawke? With Ethan Hawke in it, Uma Thurman. Great movie, by the way. But in a world that we're kind of progressing to where the, the cost of getting your genome sequence is getting cheaper and cheaper, there was a European company that was trying to do a dating site that you could get a... Uh, MHC test with and I think it's gone out of business since ne- since then but anyway it'll be it'll be fun to watch that going uh going forward. Okay, so one more question on the book and then and then we're going to move on to some other topics. As you did the research for this, which you mentioned was 4 years, which must have been just massive. I mean, I, I can't even begin to think about how to go about doing all this research. Was was there a particular entry into the book you mentioned one of your favorites already? Was there one that you read was like, and and said, "My god, this is this is the most preposterous behavior or situation. Like, I can't even believe this is the real world. Was was there any sort of uh, organism or animal or anything that you you came across? You said, my God, this is... This is either my favorite example or or the most, most ridiculous one.
1: I think one of the most surprising ones to me was the Australian redback spider, which is the only species that I'm aware of. There may have been others found since, but it's the only species I'm aware of where the male actively tries to be eaten by the female during sex. So it's reasonably common among predatory insects and and arachnids, like like, uh, so praying mantises, a lot of species of spiders, for the female to attempt to capture and eat the male. But usually the male tries to get away. So in a lot of species of spiders, the male has all kinds of means to hold the female's mouth open or sort of clamp it shut. Or the male praying mantis, he tends to approach from behind and very stealthily. But in the Australian redback spider, the male seems to, he he basically presents himself to be eaten and he has higher reproductive success. He sires more offspring if he is eaten. And it seems to be a situation where most males never meet a female. They grow up wherever they grow up and they start looking. I mean, the problem with a lot of spiders is that the female doesn't travel. She just sits where she is in her web or wherever she is. And so the male basically gets to the smallest viable size and he starts looking. And I think that maybe only 13% of Australian redback spider males ever encounter a female. And so it turns out that they have nothing to lose by being eaten, because if they weren't eaten, they'd probably never meet another female anyway. But it, that, that really surprised me. I, it just seemed like a kind of counterintuitive thing that, that, that there would be this kind of self-sacrifice.
0: So we're talking about genetics and thinking about this, and it's so fascinating to me because now you're starting to have the, the advent of some genetic tests. And, you know, we have 23andMe and Ancestry and National Geographic, and I've done all of them because I, I think it's just really fun and says, hey, it's almost a little creepy to get it back and say, you know what? you probably really like cilantro versus the people that think it's really bitter, or you probably have restless leg syndrome and yada, yada, and your hair is brown, your eyes brown, and you know what, you're from Northern Europe. And it's also interesting to see all the people that get it back, and it's totally changed their life. You know, I have sisters, you're not my mother, all these good examples. I have so many friends. There's a famous financial anchor who found out his dad was not his dad, and all of the behavioral things that go along with it. A fun question I had for you is, as I was reading many of your articles, I think this one was in the times and you were talking about in the past few years, sequencing of the Neanderthal genome. And in my tests, it said I have more Neanderthal genes than like 95% of the population. So I I wanted to go to the expert and say, can you, can you explain a little bit about what that means and kind of a little overview of kind of that genetic area of what the difference is between what we have homo sapiens today and potentially Meb's close cousin the uh, the Neanderthal
1: well the first thing I'd like to say is I think that Neanderthals generally get a kind of bad press there's a sort of feeling that because they're extinct by and large they must have been somehow stupid and I don't think there's any evidence that that's true the other thing is that they're obviously extremely closely related to Homo sapiens and were able as your ancestry shows to interbreed with them so they you know they were not particularly different and i think what interests me is the story of human evolution is becoming so much more complex than anyone thought it was that there seem to have been really many different kinds of humans around for hundreds of thousands of years and piecing together the story is very hard because often what you have is half of a finger bone or a little bit of just a, a few tools or a, a hearth place and and so increasingly, I think the story is getting complicated and intriguing. I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of the things to go back to the Neanderthal, I mean, it was it's obviously the case that there was some interbreeding, and it's obviously the case that there would have been hybrid children. Whether they would have been noticeably hybrid or not, I don't know. I mean, I went recently to a, the Neanderthal Museum that's outside Dusseldorf in Germany, and the Neander Valley is where the first Neanderthal skeletons were found. And this museum has in it mannequins that are of Neanderthals based on facial reconstruction techniques and so on, but they've been dressed in human clothes and they're kind of standing around in the museum. And part of the point is actually, you know, you wouldn't really notice them in a crowd. And so I think that it's kind of, to me, it creates a sort of sense of wonder and curiosity. I mean, we, as far as I'm aware, we don't even know the basic things like, did they have their own language? They could obviously make utterances, but did they have a kind of linguistic speech, or I don't know. I mean, some, certainly some of the earliest evidence of complex tools comes from Neanderthals. So Neanderthals were using fire to melt tree resin in order to make glue, and they would use this glue to mount axe heads onto handles. And so there was obviously a lot of sophisticated behavior. And, and you know, I sort of think, well, you come from a distinguished lineage.
0: <laughs> I, was, I thought the short answer is going to be just guaranteed to be good looking and really brilliant. That's thats where it's from. So, all right. So the Neanderthals, why did they tie out? Is there, is there any generally accepted wisdom as to kind of what happened?
1: Not as far as I'm aware. I think there are a lot of ideas. One, of, one is that maybe they needed to eat more meat than they were able to get once the climate began to change. One is that humans drove them to extinction. It's not at all clear. But I certainly, you know, it's certainly the case that something happened since since the relics that we have are ge- genetic remnants like you.
0: We'll do one more question on kind of genetics, and then we'll we'll move from bio side to rock side here in a minute. One of the other questions that we had was from a guy and and said, "I'm a Homo sapien with a family medical history that suggests our hometown was really small." What are your views on human gene editing, the potential dangers, time horizons, and a lot of the the revolution and what's going on with kind of the CRISPR technology in the past 10 years is as thinking back to the book and for me thinking about to evolution kind of playing out over history in sort of this natural environment, all of a sudden you have a lot of this modern society where it creates sort of different flows for natural selection, whether it's mentioning earlier, maybe the pill or actually potential to make adjustments to the genetic code. Do you have any general thoughts on kind of maybe looking back and looking forward as to what's the future here?
1: Well, I think, I mean, so the thing that it's about about CRISPR is that it's an extremely powerful technology. So it makes much easier something that people have obviously been thinking about and talking about since the 1970s at least, and now suddenly becomes possible, maybe.
0: And by the way, not to interrupt you, but maybe give our audience just a real real quick definition of what CRISPR is.
1: CRISPR is basically a way to do very precise gene editing without nearly so much hassle and fuss as previous techniques would have required. It's not my area of expertise at all, so I won't say more about it than that, but it does offer the possibility of changing the genes that people carry, you know, so that, so that your offspring will inherit something different from what you have because you've, you've changed it. Or you could do something where you you edit in an existing person so that they no longer have, you know, in principle, I don't know how practical it is, but so that they no longer have a particular genetic problem that they have. You know, I think that people always like to worry about how new technologies will be used. And I think that those worries are, are good because they stimulate people to think In detail about how they could be used. I mean, there was a huge amount of discussion in the 1970s when people first discovered that it was going to be possible to do any kind of genetic editing. So people have been thinking about it for a long time. The difference is it is becoming more of a possibility and, a, and something that you actually might think about doing. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm sort of agnostic about it. My, my basic feeling is that we still know rather little about how most genes behave and what they do. Many genes, especially in the human genome, seem to be embedded in big networks of other genes and it's not really clear to me that that the sort of stereotyped idea that well you can have genes for being more intelligent or or whatever is really right. I mean, I think that often what happens is much more, you know, it's an interaction between many genes and the environment. And certainly with the exception of some clear genetic diseases that kill you when you're 30 or 15, many of the genetic variants that are out there also have all kinds of interesting benefits. And so I think that it's a complex question. And certainly if it was me, I, I wouldn't be starting to play. But I think it will be interesting to see how it develops.
0: Have you, have you ever done any of the genetic ancestry tests at all?
1: I have not done any of the genetic ancestry tests. And I think that I, for me personally, what has always interested me more is the extent to which the environment, which is something that we can often change, also impacts the way that genes express themselves, and so I've always been interested in the idea that that if you, for example, improve air quality, you also save a lot of lives, and that that's actually rather easier than kind of fiddling around in most people's DNA. And so the genetic aspect of it has always interested me much less than the environmental aspect of it.
0: It's it's kind of easy on our side because we have on our family history, both side, going back like a couple hundred years, and. Kind of knew the ideas of where we had descended from over the families for a couple hundred years. But you go back even further than that, and everyone starts to become some sort of mutt. And we had a, I remember we had a big swath of kind of, Eastern Europe and Western Russia, as well, in there somewhere, which to the living group is unaware about this.
1: I had one question I wanted to ask you about that, though. So, you you, you sent your genes to a lot of different services. Did they all tell you the same thing, or did you get different yeah, results?
0: I mean, so, I, I, I kind of we knew we were, my mom's side was English and Irish, and my dad's side was French and German. Like, can take it back on both sides, I think, to the 1700s. We even have all these fun, like, wills. My dad was a a farmer in Nebraska, grew up on kind of a farm with no running water. And so we have these wills where, you know, it says, I'm going to leave my grandson, each of my grandchildren, $3. And here's two pigs and one horse. And on the French side, it's even more kind of endearing where it's talking about these family histories where they have, you know, 12 kids and seven of them die from just child mortality and all that stuff. So, yeah, they all said kind of the same general Swath of Northern Europe, but I've had a lot of friends that have had just crazy. I had one buddy who grew up his entire life thinking his family was Greek and they always hated the Italians. I think that's the two. And then it turned out he was actually Italian. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so really funny takeaways like that. And some are heartbreaking, too, of course. But a lot of people, they have them now where say, hey, by the way, here's your first cousin or here's your brother. This recent uh, Golden State Killer murder was some partially solved by one of the antresistites. So anyway, it's more of a curiosity for me. I just I think it's interesting than anything. All right. So post-book. You've been on all sorts of adventures, which is kind of like my dream. So you've written about tenophores, millipedes, microbes, cassowaries, if I said that right, octopuses or octopi. I don't know what the plural that is. Is it octopuses? Yeah. Okay. By the way, which it's kind of made me almost... I I think I kind of have to stop eating octopus because I feel like there's some sort of deep embedded... Psychology that you just can't eat beings that are that intelligent. That was one of the more interesting articles I read in a long time. It's just the, what a fascinating, weird kind of alien animal. This wasn't even. This isn't even a question. I just, it's maybe maybe you could explain real quick, kind of the intelligence of the of the octopus and kind of that genesis. Was that National Geographic? Maybe
1: it was National Geographic. Yeah. I love octopus. I've loved octopuses ever since I was a kid. And I read a book called by uh, the French pioneer of scuba diving, Jacques Cousteau, about octopus and squid, and I was became extremely interested in octopuses. And then and then I saw my first octopus when I was snorkeling when I was about eight, and I was just Absolutely delighted, and I basically don't eat octopus, but it doesn't make much sense because I'm not sure that it's easy to say, well, cows are less intelligent or pigs are less intelligent than an octopus, and I'm not sure that an intelligence hierarchy is necessarily the way to decide one's diet. But for me, it's more like a kind of affection. I I think they're amazing animals. I really enjoy watching them in the wild. The greatest adventure I had recently was when National Geographic asked me to do a story about them and sent me diving in Indonesia for a week. Indonesia being a hotspot of diversity in the ocean in general, corals also, and fish, but also octopuses. And it was just it was incredible. We saw the hairy octopus, which is a tiny little guy about the size of my thumb, who looks like a piece of red algae. We saw these extra—they these extraordinary animals that are sort of more like pieces of spaghetti. I mean, they're not really like the octopuses I'd seen before, which were Mediterranean octopuses. These guys have extraordinarily long legs and the legs are, are all controlled with extraordinary precision. And to see an octopus hunting is to, is to watch really quite a, a dexterous act. And I think that in a strange way, that's part of what I find appealing about them is that they're extraordinarily different. And yet, because they are so dexterous, you can't help on some level, at least I can't help on some level relating to them. But, you know, they do all this weird stuff. They change color, they disappear. And at the same time, they don't live very long. I mean, in some ways, it doesn't make sense to not eat them because they're very efficient at turning food into octopus. And so from the point of view of, of energy, it's it's very efficient, but I don't like to do that.
0: <laughs> so what, do I remember correctly that in the article, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you know, so many species, almost all the neurons are in the brain. Was it was the octopus that had a vast neuron network through, throughout all of their tentacles and everything else?
1: Yeah, about two-thirds of the octopus neurons are not in its head, but in its arms. So it, it has a kind of distributed nervous system, which is fundamentally different from a mammalian nervous system. It's fundamentally different from us. I mean, it's it's very difficult to imagine what the world is like from an octopus's point of view, because in the first place, not only are they in the water... But they don't have any bones. They can disappear into the tiniest cracks because they just, as long as their, as long as their beak can get through, which is a, they have a kind of parrot-like beak with which they tear away flesh of the animals they're eating. But as long as that can get through a crack, the rest of them can go through without without any problem. And it's. It's it's very strange. I mean it, it wouldn't work on land because you, you need some kind of exterior structure in order to be able to stand up against gravity. But in the water it's remarkable. And we don't really know we don't really know what the sensory world of an octopus would be like. I mean it's it's I think it's one of the most difficult things to to imagine.
0: Interesting. So you've been on a lot of these adventures Antarctica, which sounds awesome, which I, I don't think we have time to get into today, but I would I would love to I'll,
1: I'll just I'll just say that that, that, that was the most astonishing trip before i went to antarctica i thought that the good thing about the trip i don't like cold weather so i thought the good thing would be telling people i was going and then telling people i had been i didn't think that camping on a volcano in antarctica was something i was going to enjoy at all but i loved it
0: well okay well let's 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 get into it then because one of my fa- my favorite parts of that story this is why it's always nice to have a scientist around is you're sitting in your tent or camp or ice cave, I can't remember which, and which you're stuck there for how many ever hours on end, lulling conversation, sitting next to your tent mate, and you said, you know what, what's your favorite microbe? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you can always find something to talk about with a scientist. So may, let's let's go down that there. maybe talk a little bit about Antarctica. I mean, the closest I've been to doing anything like that was doing a spring break in college We didn't go to Panama City, but we went mountaineering in in Colorado and slept in an ice cave. And I actually, I mean, I loved it. And again, it's kind of the tell people you did it. But sleeping in the ice cave was like the most miserable experience. You go to bed with a hot water bottle. In your sleeping bag, you'd wake up, to keep warm, wake up, and it'd be a solid block of ice. And it just smells like flatulence and everything else with four guys in an ice cave. T- tell us a little bit about it. What was what was the point of the expedition? What were you doing down there?
1: So I was, um, I was doing a National Geographic story. So I was traveling with a photographer and the photographer's assistant. And we were with a group of three microbiologists who were interested in trying to find out what might be living on the slopes of a volcano in Antarctica. And the thing that's interesting about a volcano in Antarctica is that it is simultaneously a very cold place, but also has spots that are extremely warm. So it has, even though it's, you know, the the air temperature could be minus 40, the soil can be 80 degrees Celsius. So kind of forgotten what that means in Fahrenheit, but let's say it's 150 Fahrenheit. And so you you have this, this strange contrast between the external temperature and the temperature in the soils of the volcano itself. And so they were they were sampling the microbes in order to see whether volcanoes around the world have a kind of population of microbes that are flying around by in the currents of the wind and just kind of settling wherever it's convenient or whether each volcano has its own local population of of organisms. And so that's essentially what they were looking for. But from my point of view it was we were camping for 2 weeks on this volcano it's called Mount Erebus it's a very extreme landscape. It has something that very few other places in the world have, which is that instead of the normal fumarole where you have a kind of vent on the side of the volcano with steam coming out, the steam turns to ice immediately and you get these enormous ice towers being constructed. And it looks on the top third of the mountain, it looks like a mad Rodin went around making abstract ice sculptures. It's, it, they're extremely odd-looking and, and very strange. I'm not a mountaineer. I have no experience in, in mountains, really. And we did a hike around the crater rim of Mount Erebus that was one of the scariest days of my life. It was a sheer drop on one side to a lava lake and a sheer drop on the other side all the way down to the ocean. And, you know, you're wearing boots that, are, that have soles about five inches thick so that you hopefully don't get cold. And if you if you move too fast, you sweat and you get cold, and you cool yourself from the inside by breathing heavily into the cold air. So you have to move at just the right speed so you're not getting too hot and not getting too cold. And it's high altitude. I mean, the whole thing was kind of terrifying. And at one point, the field guide, he said to me, well, you know, Olivia, the one thing you have to know about mountaineering is however far you've come, you have to be prepared to go just as far again. And by the way, you have an icicle on your nose.
0: Mountaineering, you know, it was a young man's pursuit for me where I used to want to climb every mountain on the planet. And the older I get, I'm like, man, that sounds like such a hassle. It looks so cold. But to, so what, what was the biggest risk when you were there? I mean, you're thinking back to the Shackleton days and what a fantastic book that was about his his expedition. In the modern world, What on your trip, was the biggest risk getting stuck in a storm or a helicopter crashing or falling into a lake or hypothermia? What's in kind of... You Y'all's situation, or were most of the risks kind of mitigated by technology and just modern knowledge? Is, was there, or was it still a little, a little bit gnarly? You had to keep a keep an eye on where you're where you're stepping.
1: Well, so I think statistically, the biggest risk in Antarctica is helicopter crashes, no doubt about it. I think that, from my point of view, the biggest risk was really getting too cold, especially during the first few days when we were there, when we were in an altitude acclimatization camp, which was just tents on ice. And the other risk that was important was altitude sickness. Certainly in the past expeditions to Erebus, some people have sometimes had to be helicoptered off because because of extreme altitude sickness. But I actually have a medical sensitivity to cold. I have something called Renault syndrome, and I had to get special permission to go. I had to go and see a vascular surgeon in, in Washington who stuck my hands and feet into cold water to see whether he thought I was a big frostbite risk. And so, so I don't think that there was much real danger. But obviously, things can go wrong, and if they go wrong in an environment like that, they can very quickly become a problem.
0: Going going back to your old book, well, it becomes a problem. You die. Your genes aren't passed on. That's, that's such such is life. Natural selection. You've been selected. You've been selected out. <laughs> Renodes is where you have like, is it where you get like white fingertips or like the blood doesn't circulate correctly? Do I remember? That's
1: right. Yeah. Basically you get, the bigger problem for me, I think is not so much my hands, but my feet. I think that once I lose circulation in my toes, it, it takes quite a lot of work, especially in an outdoor situation for it to come back. Hands can be dealt with more more easily. But yes, it's basically all the blood withdraws from your fingers and toes, and it's associated with frostbite risk.
0: All right, lesson learned. Hang out more in Indonesia than Antarctica. By the way, I think it's an interesting takeaway. A lot of people would be surprised to think about getting altitude sickness in Antarctica. I think most people you get this picture of penguins in this big flat ice cap. But when really you talk about it, you're actually getting getting up there on on altitude. A couple more quick hits, and uh, we, we'd love to keep you forever. But you know, a lot of the Judson fans, listeners, myself included, been patiently waiting for your second book. Going on now a while. Maybe tell us a little bit about kind of what you've been thinking about the writing process. Maybe I think I read somewhere that your best cure for writer's block was simply. Moving to the south of France, and, and and that to me that sounds like a great idea, Jeff. We may we may have to do our our summer sabbatical. Where, where do you want to go, by the way? we we'll come up with some good idea. Maybe we'll maybe we'll do it in Greece. Talk to us a little bit about the writing process. What's going on? What are you thinking about moving from bio to to rocks and everything else?
1: Well, so I became interested about a decade ago in the observation that a great deal of the human experience of planet Earth is actually the consequence of the activities of past organisms. So the fact that the sky is blue and that the air is full of oxygen would be too very Simple examples, but it's much more extensive than that. It turns out that the chalk cliffs that are such such icons of the English South Coast, those are the remains of, of organisms that lived around 100 million years ago. And the tools that many European early humans were using to cut up their meat are actually the stone remnants of organisms called radiolarians that lived 500 million years ago. And I had not really known anything about this. I, I have to say that my education in evolutionary biology had been very much about the present and had not included very much about Earth history. And I had certainly never pondered questions such as, why had there been 4 billion years elapsing before the first animals start to appear? I hadn't really thought about questions like that. I hadn't thought about these immense spans of time very much. And through a couple of articles or a couple of journal articles that I read, I, I came across that more than two thirds of earth minerals are a result of the activities of living beings. And, and this this kind of launched me into a, a book investigation that I had never expected to do. And I certainly never expected it to take so long. But it's been Tremendously exciting, and and I I'm on the home stretch.
0: And is is this tangentially or kind of related to the recent energy expansions of evolution uh, article that you put out in in Nature?
1: So the Nature Ecology and Evolution piece is a preface of this book, and what I was arguing there is that the pattern I've described to you, in which the organisms alive in the past have created the environment we live in today, the thing that excited me tremendously is I stumbled on a mechanism. And I argue in the paper that Earth history can be divided up into five energetic epochs and that each of these corresponds to organisms evolving to use a new source of energy. And each of them also corresponds to much more complex ecosystems and an increase in the impact that living organisms have on the planet. And the environment in which we find ourselves today is a result of these cumulative expansions in the energy available. And what is very exciting to me is that while the first two types of energy, geochemical energy and sunlight, were available right from the beginning of Earth history, the the remaining three have all been made what they are by living organisms. And so it it really shows that life has transformed the planet, which has gone on to alter the future course of life. And it I think of it as the building of a of, of a biosphere. And it really does explain why it is that for four billion years there were no animals. It's not just a question of evolution. It's also a question of environmental transformation. And I think that the, one of the things I'm so excited about is I think that this will help us to think about what we might expect to find elsewhere.
0: Kind of guides the search a little bit too, right? Where, and you kind of walk through this. So listeners, the five were geochemical energy, sunlight, oxygen, flesh, and fire, and kind of looking for potential life elsewhere. It it may guide our, our buddy Elon looking for new intelligent life or potential planets. Is, is that a kind of general thought as, as well?
1: It certainly, I, I think so, yes. I think that, I certainly think that, my, well, my let me make, make my personal prediction. My personal prediction is that some kind of life will turn out to be fairly common in the universe. Complex life, I think complex intelligent life with technology, I think will obviously be much more rare because it will depend on the cumulative effects of not just of evolution, but of the geological potential of, of different planets. And so, for example, a planet that is very far from a star, or possibly one that has no star at all, may, if it has a lot of internal heat, still be able to produce some kind of life, but it may never be able to develop anything further than than a few microbes. And, and I think that this does potentially give a way to think about what to look for and where to find it.
0: Olivia, there's like 20 more pages of questions that I have and would love to get to, but I promise we'd only only keep you for an hour. Anything else got you really excited today that you're thinking about, you know, as we look to the future and as we think about a lot of these topics? And I'd like to actually frame that question a little bit differently first, and we can add that in as, as a part B because we normally, end our podcast, we have all these investing nerds like me on here, and we say, okay, what's what's been your most memorable investment? And I want to kind of flip the question for you, because as a scientist, you've experienced so much and, and looked into so many different ideas and worlds that are foreign to, to many of us. But would love to hear, and this may be Antarctica, so if it is, you have to answer a second one. In all your year, years in the wild, in the library, on the computer, thinking, researching all these uh, concepts, studying organisms... What's been your most memorable experience and why?
1: I'm afraid I would have to answer Antarctica. I think it's it's going to be the unbeatable one for me. There's something about the stripped down beauty of an environment that is reduced to white, blue and gold that I found absolutely I, I don't know. It was like I was extraordinarily thirsty for the environment. I just kind of gazed out of the landscape. And for me, that was, that was really a remarkable experience.
0: Oh, great. So what's... All right. So now you're decamped to Berlin. Let's talk about the future now. I imagine the book is number one on your mind. But is there anything else that head-scratchers, curiosities, anything you're really excited about that is on your brain and you're kind of marinating on uh, today?
1: There are some extremely exciting experimental results in The Origin of Life. And I, I think about those a lot. And I think that, yeah, there's some guys in Strasbourg who've got some really exciting new results. And I'm anticipating exciting Developments.
0: Can, can you tell us any more? Or is this, is this a, another preview uh, for the work coming out?
1: I think it would be better. You should speak to them yourself. They're, they're very good, they're, they're ext- extremely interesting. I'll send, I can send you the details of the, of the guy who's been doing the work, but I, I think it's tremendously exciting experimental results. I mean, it's certainly nowhere near to anything that gets up and walks around. Um, but it's, uh, it's provocative.
0: Well, good. Hopefully you know, this will all lead to the answer of Doug- Douglas Adams original question or answer of 42. We'll finally, find right. out what the, we'll finally find out what the question is. Um, Olivia, we'll link to all the show notes from this. Well, your papers, your books, the research you talk about about Strasbourg. Um, where's the best place for people to follow you if they want to follow, uh, your new book coming out. I know, I know, I know you're not on Twitter, so we can't wrestle you there, but where, uh, where do people follow your... Uh, all your work
1: oh uh that's a that's a uh, i I have a website that's being built it's not built yet but eventually there will be a website um at the as i said i i'm not really online that much at the moment because i'm i'm trying to trying to finish so watch this space
0: okay olivia was is your your website olivia judson will that be the correct spot if and when
1: yes it will be but it's, it's not there yet
0: Okay, well good. Um, well look, Sorry sorry that
1: I know that I'm a I know that I'm a sort of faulty my, my, 21st century person, but uh,
0: my my co-producer Jeff still uses a Motorola Razr phone, so I don't I don't feel so I don't feel so bad. I, I think I would be much happier. All the research today is showing that a little bit of detachment from all this technology makes people a little less crazy and a little happier anyway. So
1: Well, I tell you what I love about my phone, which is an old Nokia. I can use it for a week without recharging it.
0: However, however, you get lost in Berlin, you're going to have to start asking people for directions instead of using your phone, which what a wonderful problem to have. Olivia Judson, Dr. Talantana, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Listeners, you can find the show notes. We'll post them up on the blog, mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can always find the archives, all the other podcasts as well. Leave us a review. We love to hear what you guys think. Good, bad, terrible, wonderful. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Podcast Stitcher, my new favorite, Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.